Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we talk about what it takes to be a blockchain developer. Our special guest today is Gavin Wood, co-founder of Parity, who will share his view on what it takes to get into blockchain development. So today is all about uh, what it takes to be a blockchain developer. And we have this really special interview, which I'm super excited about. But maybe before we jump into that, I actually wanted to talk to you, Frederick. A lot of the audience may not know you. We've done interviews with a lot of other people, but I wanted to take this chance to interview you a little bit and ask you um, what got you into this space? What, what led you to blockchain? I think I had a reasonably like conscious path into uh, quote unquote blockchain development. I've been a programmer for many years. Um, I actually figured out the other day that I've been a programmer for more years of my life than I have not been a programmer. <laughs> I'm past the halfway point. <laughs> but I I got into uh, this stuff from a uh, referral from a friend. Like uh, Jared, my good buddy, uh, told me about Ethereum and uh, smart contracts and what you could do with them. And I thought it was really cool. At the time, I was uh, uh, founder of a startup, uh, just just had started. We were in an incubator and are trying to make something of it. And uh, when that ended, the, sort of the stars aligned, I suppose, and I got some time and ability to actually study and uh, get up to speed on blockchain development. And um, you know, started out as as most people do. I mean, I, I'd been involved in the Ethereum community for um, a long time on Reddit, and then uh, started looking at smart contracts and Solidity and started reading some papers and reading the yellow paper and like figuring that out and puzzling things out. Um, and uh, I'd been interested in Rust for a long time, and I saw that uh, parody uh, was actually written in Rust, so I started looking into that a little bit as well. And um, I, I wrote a sample implementation of uh, PBFT, the Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerant Algorithm, um, from the original paper in the 90s, or that that is from the 90s. And um, I don't know, I, ju I just tinkered around with it for a couple of months, I think, and, and kind of just decided that I, I want to get involved with this. Um, I read the, the theoretical material, started writing some code on it, started reading some code on it, and um, finally just said, uh, what the hell, I'll apply for a job at Parity. Was, when you started getting into blockchain development, was it significantly different from things you'd done before? To a degree, yes. Um, I come from a very web developer heavy background. I mean, I, I started my programming career as a freelance web developer doing literally like everything, design, HTML, um, PHP back in the day. And uh, But then I, like as I got into college, I um, my master's is in engineering physics and numerical analysis, got more into 
um, like data analysis after college. Um, so my first startup after college was um, in financial analytics and then uh, have done backend development for a long time. Um, been doing a lot of database stuff, um, but not really anything as theoretically heavy as you know, core infrastructure, blockchain networking, and, and all of the things that we're doing. So a lot of this stuff was new, um, but it's not as though I was completely new to like reading a math paper and then writing an implementation based off of it, because that's that's was my whole college experience, just doing that basically. Do you think like developers who want to get involved in it, are there some things that they should be doing? Like is, like in that in that period of time you mentioned where you were getting excited about it, like what what should people be doing if they're getting excited? I think um, back in those days, the Ether the Reddit subreddit uh, for Ethereum was really good and, and you know technically oriented, and you could get in, you got up to speed on the latest developments. Um, but today, it, uh, it has changed a bit, and maybe the best thing to do is just. Um, browse the internet for resources on like there, there's this um, trend on GitHub to collect awesome things. So there's awesome JavaScript, awesome Rust, and it ba it's basically lists of resources that are good to learn something. I'm pretty sure there's an awesome Ethereum. Um, and I, I don't know, there, there's a couple of these good places that just gather up good reading material. So read up on it, understand the fundamentals. I'm a very like first principles oriented guy. I like to understand things bottom up, um, and just like start at the basic concept of what a block is, what, what data does it actually contain practically? And then from that, you can build an understanding of sort of what you can do with it. Are there some languages or tools that you would recommend people do right away or get involved with right away? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, like, should everyone learn solidity? No, I don't think so. So solidity is, is the de facto choice. If you want to write smart contracts and, and applications on top of a blockchain, it's not really relevant if you're, um, in the sort of core infrastructure space of, um, you know, the, the EVM is not tied to solidity. The EVM is a VM that's agnostic to whatever language you build on top of it. So um, you need to have a good understanding of the VM fundamentals and like how the VM works, which language runs on top and compiles down to these opcodes is, uh, I mean, it's good to understand, but it's not critical. So I wouldn't say that there's any particular language. I mean, you could learn everything, write your toy implementations of things in JavaScript or Haskell or whatever you want to do it in and, and just have fun doing it. I think that's the main thing is, um, in general, not blockchain related at all, but in general on how you learn something and how you stay interested in, in doing something is have fun doing it. Um, mm -hmm. so don't just don't just sit down and read papers all day because you know for most people that will be really boring and you'll give up and you'll lose interest uh, so uh, <laughs> rather like maybe read something and then try to write an implementation of it or um do quick dirty hacks and or like get into the um, uh, go ethereum or parity code basis and try to contribute yeah. or find a bug that you think you can fix or something like that 
Yeah, maybe people can also, I know that there's been a lot of hackathons popping up, especially those big ones like ETH uh, Waterloo and ETH Denver. Um, maybe look around for stuff like that too. Yeah, I think those are great yeah. resources to find mentorship and just generally people that you can ask questions and kind of get into the space, yeah. Cool. So tell me a little bit about this interview that you did with Gavin. So um, we were uh, in a kind of remote location. Uh, I brought my microphone and we had an opportunity to, to record. And so we did. Uh, in retrospect, I sort of uh, regret actually picking that time and place because um, it was a really odd space with a lot of wood uh, around. So it's very echoey, uh, very, a lot of noise in the background you'll hear a baby screaming in the background at some point and various <laughs> rustling that was sort of uh, affecting the microphone. So the quality is real great. rustic podcasting right here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, authentic. The quality isn't great, but I, I still think the content is good enough that I want to share it with everyone. Maybe we can talk a little bit about this podcast just to give people some sense of where we're at. We set out just to try this out and we set out to just put together a couple episodes. We tried all these different mic setups. We tried all these different formats. I think we're still trying a lot of this stuff, um, but it's been really nice to see it evolve and to get some stuff kind of settled to understand our sound a little better. Um, and I think that's maybe why when we hear recordings that aren't as awesome as they are getting now, we're like, oh, we can do better. It's definitely been a learning process. I mean, I still remember when we started the idea in the parody water cooler riot channel, just someone, I think I, I asked the question, what are some good podcasts about blockchain stuff out there? Oh, Cause yeah. that's, I actually learn a lot about, you know, development in general. And I, I keep up to date on a lot of topics through podcasts. And so I was like, yeah, I want to, see what's out there and see if there's anything development oriented that I can learn from or keep up to date with like latest developments. And uh, no one had a good suggestion. So we just kind of went, let's start something. <laughs> and um, month after that, or two months or something, uh, at some point last year, we actually started something. And uh, we've, uh, I think we've gotten really far with both our quality and, and like how how we do this in general, um, and hopefully the listeners can can tell the difference or or notice that we're getting better and and have faith in us that we'll get even better in the future. Yeah, although I am on a bit of a funny mic setup today, but yes, normally <laughs> yes, agreed. Uh, yeah, and I think um, maybe just a. Just a last point. Do you want to introduce this this interview? Do you want to set the scene? Sure. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's it's me and Gavin. And um, Gavin, as uh, you may or may not know, is the co-founder of Ethereum. Uh, he's written a lot of code for uh, the C++ and uh, Rust implementations of Ethereum, the Ethereum protocol. Uh, he is still very much a programmer. He, he writes code daily and uh, these days he's writing code for Polkadot and um, I wanted to dig into how he got into got into this but also like try to figure out a little bit of what patterns are is he seeing because he's been hiring people in this space for a long time uh, yeah. what patterns is he seeing in like what makes a person 
good or bad at blockchain development mm-hmm. or like what are the traits and people um, that you should look for if you're hiring or uh, rather what I want to get at is the opposite direction. Like if you actually want to get into this, what are the traits that you should enhance in yourself? Mm. I feel like this is going to be really helpful to a lot of people. Um, I think that's a question that I think a lot of devs who are getting excited about it would love to know the answer to. So hopefully uh, we'll we'll get into a little bit of that and, and you'll find out a little bit. And uh, also hopefully we can get Gavin on another interview again in the in the future at some point. So here is the interview between me and Gavin. Welcome to this episode of uh, Zero Knowledge. Thanks for having me. I'm Frederick, as usual, and with us today is uh, Gavin Wood. Gavin is co-founder of Ethereum, although it seems like everyone and their grandmother is co-founder of Ethereum these days. Uh, But I guess, uh, Gavin, you're most known for um, writing code on the original Ethereum C++ implementation, and then you wrote code on the Rust implementation for Parity. Now you're writing code on the Polkadot implementation for Parity. Um, So you're obviously well-versed in what it takes to write good infrastructure code. And what I want to talk about today is uh, blockchain development, what makes a good blockchain developer. Uh, When I say that, I I mean infrastructure, like core infrastructure developer, not like a DAP developer, which is a completely different beast um, and has its own quirks and could be its own episode. Um, But like um, the heavy, like, like blockchain node implementation type work. But before we get into that, I would like to find out more, like, what's your background? Like, we're both programmers since before blockchain stuff. So what was your background in programming? Um, so it began when I was about eight years old. And I got a uh, an old computer for uh, secondhand for Christmas one year. Um, Texas Instruments TI-994A was pretty awful. I had three games for it and one of them kept my attention for a little while but then eventually I was looking for something else to do on it and yeah, it had a, an old version of BASIC on it so it was possible to get started that way. And I went on and I, I sort of did a lot of stuff. I went and got a Spectrum uh, eventually and then upgraded that to an Amiga um, and I did a few um, games on that on that platform. And then I guess around 16, 17 I moved from basic and basic derivative languages to Pascal and then shortly after C and C++. And I guess it, it continued like that uh, through university. I carried on doing random C++ projects um, in my own time. Um, learned a few other bits as well, um, web stuff as that was starting to become a bit of a platform. And uh, through university, of course, they teach you about a bunch of other things like functional programming and declarative programming, formal methods and all the rest of it. Um, but C++ always, always sort of kept my attention. Um, after university, I went to the games industry for a year. Um, again, C++ stuff. Um, when I was at university, I was doing a lot of audio programming. And uh, the uh, within the games industry, I sort of became the lead audio coder in this uh, sort of mid-sized games firm, and uh, wrote their next generation or then next generation um, uh, audio engine for um, that was uh, sort of source code compatible between PS3, uh, Xbox 360, and PC, which 
it was actually quite a feat at the time because the PS3's uh, hardware was was pretty exotic um, and pretty difficult to use correctly. It had these um, synergistic processing units that were kind of halfway between a CPU and a GPU um, a shader unit. I needed to use that for all of the sort of heavy lifting of audio from making making stuff. Not only the uh, the code of the audio engine, but also the um, the sort of user code, uh, the audio shaders, the audio filters, as it were, um, to uh, uh, to work um, completely um, transparently between um, PS3 and, and, and PC and Xbox was pretty hard. But what it taught me, I guess, a lot was. Um, kind of like mission critical systems like an audio engine in a game can't ever glitch right if it glitches then you know it's, the game's dead in the water following that I did some work um, was doing a lot of sort of again C++ coding a bit of .NET and Java was working its way in there as well but did a bunch of stuff for uh, Microsoft Research where I was doing embedded domain specific language uh, work for uh, video analysis and synthesis um, and again other projects um, some to do with audio visualization, some to do with sort of machine learning, text analysis for, for legal contracts, and then eventually I found myself um, at the doors of Ethereum. So I uh, went in. How um, did you go from your your past life to like, I want to write a C++ note for Ethereum? <laughs> um, well, I was down the pub one evening, uh, chatting to a... Um, a sort of a friend um, who, who was actually a mutual friend with uh, Vitalik and uh, he was sort of mentioning that he had this mate Vitalik who was um, thinking about some of the some, some derivative of Bitcoin some sort of uh, you know, blockchain new, new sort of blockchain I was like oh okay yeah that's kind of interesting he said oh you know he's kind of looking um, looking to develop it out maybe you could help and join the project I was like oh well yeah. take a look um, but honestly, it was uh, having come from a, one of my personal projects, probably the biggest single personal project is um, something called a language workbench, which basically meant writing a compiler front end in a pure plugin manner. So um, essentially, there was just one um, uh, language atom and uh, uh, one sort of notional um, uh, no no type of a notional pass tree and uh, the idea um, is to basically keep deriving that into new kinds of nodes so that you can then um, it can then uh, represent whatever language it is that you want to program in. Um, and it was a pretty a pretty groundbreaking idea. There were a couple of other similar projects around, but none of them really had delivered anything at that point. And certainly none of them had attempted it with C++, which uh, you know, is non-introspective, is compiled, it's efficient. Um, uh, they were doing it with sort of slightly easier things like Java or .NET. And having come off that, which is probably the most intellectually demanding project I've ever taken on, um, Ethereum was, was pretty, pretty simple in comparison. I mean, you know, it was reasonably well specified, um, certainly not an ambiguous, but sufficiently well specified to actually make a pretty good stab on it. And um, it's it's actually a pretty simple state transition system. I mean, it's there's the game theory behind it. I mean, it's just um, Nakamoto consensus. So the game theory behind it is pretty negligible. Um, it's got a VM, but the VM is relatively easy to implement. There's not much difficult stuff in there. Um, and going going back to this performance aspect, when you like 
launched into this problem and like you sat down and I want to write this, did you have any conscious like model of I need to meet these performance benchmarks or I need the code to look in this way or like did you go into the project with some expectation of uh, how this was going to look in the end? Um, in terms of performance, not particularly. I mean, I, I knew that it was probably going to be the most performant um, of the implementations. I mean, there was the Go implementation, of course, which is not a, a slow language, but I wasn't, I didn't think performance was going to be an issue. But that said, writing reasonably efficient code is just something that kind of comes. Um, it's a force of habit now, right? You, yeah. you, you kind of notice when you're copying stuff. You notice when you're doing using a linked list rather than a, um, a vector when you actually need to um, um, you know, to run through things fast. So it wasn't a big a big problem. The I mean the, the bigger problems are like come into it when you start using um, using these um, sort of blockchains like Ethereum um, very heavily for very particular transactions that you don't pre-optimize for. Um, I mean, you don't pre-optimize them because you don't know that they're going to be those um, up front. But um, then there's a lot of kind of you know database work, um, a lot of low-level optimization work that goes alongside that when you need to actually um, perform reasonably well. Um, but by and large, the way uh, the way this was all managed, like performance in general was managed, was by the fact that we measured performance and then set the costs of using this network uh, based upon the client's performances. So the clients were written, they were then about as fast as, you know, at some benchmark speed. And then you just say, right, well, in that case, we are going to make the multiplication operation exactly uh, 10 times um, um, less expensive than the um, square root operation. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, of course, the performance of... Um the VM and once a node is, is operating and you're importing transactions and, and operating normally uh, on a public blockchain, there isn't, I mean, the requirements aren't that steep because there's not that many blocks per second or per minute even. And um, it's, it's easier to get away with where it really, like where we see counting today is on sync times, running things on machines that aren't that powerful and um, uh, especially like in private net networks where they might want to have different characteristics such as one second block times uh, that have huge like gas limits but what we what will you say like you've hired a lot of people in this field now you've been in this world for a long time who do you see succeed and do well and and what type of person um, doesn't do well well, I think there's a few a few kinds of people that, that do well in different in different ways. Part of it is um, on the sort of global scale is just architecting the code base in an effective manner, which is not always so easy. And unless you're you know relatively experienced in writing you know multi tens of thousands of lines of code base, then you start um, you you can make some pretty pretty bad mistakes. And I think you know. I don't know what it's like now, but Bitcoin Core in Satoshi's time was sort of prominently noted as being a fairly sort of crappily architected code base. Once the blockchain sort of is deployed and you're looking at production code, you're looking at maintaining and altering production code, then it becomes increasingly important. That's when performance um, comes in and not just sort of performance as in, you know, um, 
being able to profile and, and, and tweak code in order to make it run a bit faster, but also understanding um, things like orders of execution time, orders of complexity. Um, because if you don't, you will find that it becomes not just a um, you know, an issue of having to run past the service, but it becomes a security issue on the network. Um, and we saw that in the China attacks of Ethereum when the Go client was uh, was coded in such a way that there was a, a means of um, uh, well <laughs> that when a when a particularly underpriced um, operation in Ethereum was um, was overutilized, it was unable to keep up. Uh, I think it actually crashed. So it was it um, there was some. Um, it was a combination of both. Like you're saying, it was a mispriced uh, opcode. Um, so the, the the Go team had no reason to expect that this should be you know called this often. Um, so I mean, in that sense, their trade off might have been correct to, to make. Um, at Parity, we had made some other trade off for some reason, and so we we handled it fine. That's true. So the uh, certainly coders with um, a good knowledge of both memory and um, CPU. Um, Orders of complexity are, uh, are pretty important. In addition to that, I guess it's uh, the overwhelming thing is um, about the fact that errors can't really slip in. So a degree of conscientiousness that you perhaps don't often see is um, is pretty important. It's um, I mean. But then on the other side, the fact of the matter is that if you crash, then it's easy enough to restart. As long as you don't corrupt your database, then um, mm. actually the tolerance of, of nodes itself uh, is pretty high because the network is basically just a 100% a replicated state machine. Yeah. So th this is actually an interesting thing to, to think about. And, and one of my absolute main arguments for having multiple implementations of any blockchain code is... The, the protocol and the network is set up in such a way that, I mean, it's by design, it's Byzantine fault tolerance, which means that not only can nodes crash and it, things are fine, uh, but nodes can behave in erratic ways. There can be bugs that uh, really like destroy, <laughs> um, send out faulty blocks or do whatever. The, the point of the protocol is to be Byzantine fault tolerant, but that only holds true if there are multiple implementations that check each other's work, or at least there's some distribution on the network running different versions and whatnot. You can solve it in different ways. Yes, it's the um, it, it is the protocol that at the end of the day determines whether the network's going to um, succeed or fail. So yeah, I think for the blockchain. The underlying blockchain itself, there's actually, most of it is either relatively well-specified algorithms like um, the cryptographic primitives or um, PBFT, or it's um, relatively simple, but you know very important to get right, but relatively simple state transition stuff like um, make sure that uh, a balance transfer reduces this and increases this by the same amount and always make sure that the first thing that it reduces obviously is, has, has enough to make it, sure, to make it um, uh, still above zero after the reduction. Um, and actually a lot of the more complicated um, um, problems can be shunted up to the higher level for contract writers. 
I guess uh, one of the other um, pretty important aspects of a blockchain, which is not necessarily part of a blockchain, but um, has been part of, uh, of the general software environment of blockchains um, um, for most projects, Ethereum and Bitcoin included, is things like key management, secret management. Um, and obviously, um, you know, this is pretty important um, uh, from the security point of view. So getting, uh, getting that right, being sensitive to things like uh, whether that information is, um, hangs around in memory, whether it, it could possibly, whether there are code paths that allow you, um, allow someone who's unauthorized to access it. Uh, but this really does fall back into the, the just general um, programmer conscientiousness, and I think um, to some degree, perhaps not not to a, a, a you know a massive degree, but to some degree, this can be offset a little by the uh, by the language that you use. Um, some languages naturally give you more um, um, stronger and more um, uh, nuanced guarantees over um, how the uh, program itself will operate at runtime, and others less. You mentioned that there's a couple of different types of people that do well in different areas in different fields so so we mentioned like as a programmer good skills to have are performance awareness knowing orders of magnitude being curious willing to learn pick up stuff and be conscientious and know that you're writing security relevant code um, but what are the other types of people and kind of what, what are the other types of fields that are important that you see? For some aspects of blockchain, it's certainly um, um, more mathematical or academic fields are, um, are important. It doesn't, that's not to say that you can't write a blockchain without having a deep knowledge of maths. I don't have a particularly deep knowledge of maths. But um, some of the technologies surrounding blockchain and if you're really desperate to get into the um, the cryptographic primitives, um, then uh, such a sort of a grounding in, in fairly advanced maths can can very much help you. Having a, I found that obviously we, we now live in an era of white papers and people trying to be fancy in how they write things. Yeah. Having some background in academics and, and knowing how to read papers, like that's the joke usually is like the the main thing you learn in academia is how to read papers <laughs> and, uh, and that holds true to some degree like i've read enough papers in my life that i know like how to skim it and then how to dig into the important parts and uh, that kind of stuff so i think that's a uh, that will be helpful if you're in this space but speaking about academia we are in a field that is touching on a lot of stuff that exists to some degree in academia like distributed computing um like networking like there's a lot of a lot of subfields within the blockchain industry um that are known fields um they are known in academia and they known are known in other areas of computer programming industry um but i I don't see a lot of crossover. Like I don't see a lot of blockchain companies hiring, you know, distributed computing PhDs or whatever. Do you see more of that in in the future, or do you see a reason why that hasn't happened? Um, I think the reason why it hasn't happened is because at the moment blockchain is quite a nuanced and a relatively um, not misunderstood, not quite badly understood, but not very well understood um, discipline. And taking someone with a, you know, a very sort of, um, taking an expert, for example, in distributed systems um, and saying, right now, program a scalable blockchain 
um, probably wouldn't get you very far because they would be able to program you a, um, a scalable um, uh, state machine, but that would not have um, the, uh, the qualities that we need from a blockchain being you know, Byzantine full tolerant and all the rest of it. And it's, it's really this sort of mixture of you know, people who understand um, key aspects of computer science, but also sort of are able to mix it with um, uh, aspects of economics, game theory, and you know, what, what we now sort of call crypto economics, which is effectively just um, uh, computers playing games. Um, but the games can be, uh, the games are designed by people in order to make the computers um, kind of do what we want them to do as, a, as, a, as, a, as an emergent effect rather than um, on an individual basis. Um, and designing those games is difficult. It is very difficult um, because we are designing rules um, in order to get to a particular emergent effect. And normally, the only way that we we, we understand um, emergent effects is by um, looking at existing examples of rule sets and seeing what happens, or looking at what happens and then trying to discover the underlying rule set. Um, so designing one from another is 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 not an easy task, and um, it, it's it's going to be fairly painstaking. Almost, it's almost as though the sort of very specific things in computer science, like distributed systems, like VM, like you know database management, is they are relevant, but they're only they're kind of tangentially relevant. Um, I think distributed systems is perhaps a little bit more relevant, but still, it's not um, it's not in and of itself enough to make a, a, a you know a really significant contribution you would also have to understand um, the, the you know the, the, the very specific things about blockchains and and, um, and, and how um, how those um, requirements um, can be met and that requires you to have some degree of um, you know of knowledge of economics and so forth yeah. essentially you're living under some different constraints. I guess it's important to make the distinction between a, um, you know, what it takes to be a, someone who implements a blockchain protocol and what it takes to be someone who designs a blockchain protocol. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Those are um, very different. And if we're talking about implementing a perfectly specified blockchain protocol, then you know they've got to be they've got to be able to implement something correctly. But to be honest, that's about it, right? It's it's not once something is perfectly specified, then. Um, it's sufficient just to be able to read it and express it in whatever language is your your choice, right? It's it's essentially um, the job of a translator. But writing this specification in the first place um, is uh, much harder. Now, of course, as programmers, we often mix these two things. We, we consider designing the program and coding the program often happen at basically the same time, right? As we write, we're kind of designing bits of it. And, and it's it's kind of it's not really the case with blockchain that it really is more like this is what TCP/IP protocol is, and I'm going to now write a TCP/IP stack. Um, blockchain maybe sits slightly higher in the in the you know sort of technical um, um, world of, of things um, than TCP/IP, but you know it's it, it's a very very similar thing in that someone comes along and says right this is how the protocol is going to work you need to be able to receive these bytes this is what they mean when you receive them you're going to need to do this this and this you might want to send bytes out under these conditions um, and that's what they should look like and that's it there's, there's, there's not much to it the one notable exception is that blockchain protocols sometimes don't mention things like strategies so for example the yellow paper of ethereum doesn't mention um, things like what the mining strategy should be, whether it should um, um, 
whether it should uh, instantly always mine on the latest block it sees, whether if uh, you know it's got good reason to believe it's gonna it's found a block on a previous thing, but that's all that's just gone out of date. Whether it should still publish it, whether it should um, um, dedicate resources to um, how it should how it should organize its networking. None of this. This is all very um, um, subjective strategy that is free. Um, freed up for the blockchain programmer themselves to decide how to work and that's I guess a little bit interesting as well it's like really a blockchain protocol gives you the rules for the game those rules should be absolutely specified but um, it doesn't tell you necessarily how to play the game and that's a good thing because if it tells you how to play the game it means everyone's probably going to play the game the same and if there's any um, if that is not the um, the very best way of playing this particular game on the assumption that everyone's going to play it more or less like you um, then there's uh, there's a problem. It's a security issue for the network because someone comes along with a slightly better strategy or a, a, a different strategy that in the case that most of the people are playing this particular strategy, then um, you've got a big issue. So if we have a programmer listening to this right now that are thinking, I want to get into this, what would your advice be? I guess the the first thing to do is you know take a look at some of the, the projects out there and um, you know, download the code, have a have a hack, maybe, um, and maybe figure if there's there's an issue or something that can be worked on, and, uh, and sort of get just get started that way, just sort of dip your toes into the water. Um, you've also got the choice of languages, of course. Um, if if for example, Rust is a language that you really like to to code in, then um, that sort of narrows down your search fairly. Fairly <laughs> well, yeah. um, but you know, I mean, it, it. It's also fair to say that blockchain as a whole, though you know, if you focus very particularly on the implementation of a blockchain node, um, that, that that's fairly narrow. But blockchain as a whole has an awful lot of sort of semi-peripheral and peripheral pieces than just the um, the underlying node implementation. Um, things like you know key management, things like writing the higher level contract code, things like tools, designing languages, designing state transition um, systems, formal methods, processes, whether they're integrated into the node or not, um, are all not necessarily core pieces, but they are um, very important components of the more general ecosystem. So to sum it up, um, your advice is the the age-old, just fucking do it. Indeed. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for uh, having this conversation with me. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. 